Now we look at verse six of John 17. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, tonight, I want to look at the second part of the priestly prayer in two points. The first point is coming from verses six to eight, and that is that the son gives the words of the father to the disciples of the son. I'll say that again. The son gives the words of the father to the disciples of the Son, 6 through 8. Then, having prefaced that, in verses 9 through 12, we have the Son asking the Father to keep the disciples of the Son. The Son asks the Father to keep the disciples of the Son. There's where actually the second petition lies, is Right there in that second part. Now, verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 again. I have manifested your name to the men whom you, whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now, last week we saw that the father gave the son his people, the elect. Here we see the son gives the word of the father to the disciples. The father gives you to the son. And the son gives the word to you who belong to the father. Christ here is manifesting the name of the father to his people. And so what we find here is that the elect, those that 
were chosen by the Father, given to the Son. Now the Son takes those that were given to him and does what? He washes them or washes you, the church, with the word. And I think this may be one of those places, though I'm not 100% certain, but certainly it is echoed by Paul when you get to Ephesians chapter 5. Because when you get to Ephesians 5, you remember that Paul, talking about the mystery of the union in marriage, notes that in a way, just as God gave Eve to Adam in marriage, the father has given a bride to the son. That is, the father has given the church, the elect, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the son do with the bride? The son gives the bride the word. He washes her with the, wa- with the water of the word. He manifests himself to his people through the preaching of the word. And that, of course, is what the Apostle Paul says husbands are to do with their wife. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then admonishes them to give their wife the word. Notice that in verse 6, Jesus says here, they have kept your word. The father has given the elect to the son. The son has given The word to the elect. And Jesus says they have kept your word. Speaking of his disciples. The disciples did not lose the word of Christ that was sown in their heart. They are not as those who spring up quickly and wither away. They are not as those who are going to be choked out with the cares and concerns of this world. The disciples have thus far shown themselves to be faithful. Except the son of perdition will become a traitor. But that is not hidden from Christ. The rest of the disciples will abide in the word and the word is going to abide in them. They are committed to Christ. And the spirit applies the word fully to his church, to his people. After Jesus Christ ascends. And then in verse seven, the disciples come to understand that every blessing From the father comes to them through the son. You see this in verse seven. Jesus says, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. In verse eight, they come to understand that the son comes from the father. What is the best of the blessings that the father gives to his elect that come through the son? Well, it's the son himself. So what are we? To make of this. Well, notice here that Jesus says they keep the word of Christ. Christ gives them the word and they keep the word. So probably an obvious application is for us to ask ourselves, are we abiding in the word? Are we keeping the word that Christ has given us? How do I keep the word, you say? How do I keep the word, boys and girls? Well, I keep Christ's word by faith in him. I read the word. I listen to the word carefully when it's preached, when mom and dad read it at the kitchen table, when I read it uh, in my bedroom. I allow the word to abide in me and I seek to abide in the teaching of the word. And so even down to the particulars. We ask we need to ask ourselves, are we abiding in all things that the word teaches us 
Are we, when we wrong another, asking for forgiveness? When we see another in sin, are we following Matthew 18? Are we honoring our parents with respectful tone and manner and word choice? We need to abide in the word. The word needs to abide in us. We need to keep the word. That's where the rubber meets the road in our faith. Jesus teaches in verse 8 that the Son comes from the Father to the disciples of the Son. And they, the disciples in turn, believe on the Son. The Father sends the Son. The Son goes to the elect. The elect believe on the Son. And then Jesus notes that to believe on the Son is therefore to believe on the Father. Look at verse 8. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them, meaning they received the Bible. They received the word and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me to notice there that they believed that Jesus came from the father. And by believing that Jesus is the son from the father, you are in a sense believing on the father. This is why we have to absolutely believe that to believe on the Son is to believe in the Father. Or to put it conversely, to reject the Son, to reject Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the Scripture is a rejection of God, even if they profess some kind of monotheism. So, for example, Islam does not truly believe in God. The Father, because why? They have rejected the true revelation of the Son. Islam teaches that Jesus is a prophet. They esteem him highly as a prophet. But they do not teach or adhere to the idea that he is God in the flesh. He is incarnate God living among men who gives himself for sinners and that all who trust in Jesus Christ, have the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness they need to stand before that God. And so, because they have rejected the Son as he reveals himself, they are not believing in the Father. This is true of mainline liberal churches. They have rejected the Jesus of the Bible, and by rejecting the Jesus of the Bible, they have rejected the Father of the Bible. They have rejected Jesus' miracles. They have rejected Jesus' bodily resurrection. They have rejected the full deity of Jesus Christ. And so they have not received the word of Christ. And by not receiving the word of Christ, they have not believed on the Father who sent him. This is why Congregation J. Gresson Mason, in his book Christianity and Liberalism, said that, that mainline liberal churches are not another form of Christianity. It is antithetical to Christianity. It is another religion altogether. That it is not just another version of the truth, but it is the opposite. It is to reject the truth. Unitarianism, the same way. That's why H.L. Mencken uh, said that uh, regarding Machen, he was not a, a, a necessarily a, a believer like Machen and certainly didn't agree with Machen, but he respected the consistency of Machen on that point and, and said, you know, that the, the Protestant churches that are liberal, if they were honest, they would become Unitarians. 
because they have rejected the son as the son has been revealed to the people. So this is why we believe in the virgin birth. Why? Why is it absolutely necessary to hold to the virgin birth? Well, because it demonstrates the deity of the of, of the son. The son is conceived by the spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary miraculously being both God and man now. If he is not conceived miraculously by the power of the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, then he too is a sinner and cannot redeem us from our sins. But you see, liberals do not really believe that Jesus redeems us in the sense we do from our sin. They believe that in some form of redemption by way of example, not by way of substitutionary atonement. And so the, the way to heaven in the liberal church is to be like Jesus. And that Jesus was the first Christian. He's not the son of God who has come in the flesh. See, it's a very different religion entirely. What Jesus is saying, though, is that his disciples, minus Judas, have received the truth of who Jesus is. And by believing on Jesus as he really is and revealed to the disciples, they are in then, in truth, believing on the Father who sent Jesus. So what one does with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is what one does with God, the Father. To receive the Son is to receive the Father. To reject the Son is to reject God the Father. And Jesus said this to his disciples when he sent them out. And he said, you know, those who receive you, are in a sense receiving me and those who receive me are receiving the father. Those who reject you, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting the son. And by rejecting the son, they are rejecting God, the father. Shake the dust off your your outer garments and off your feet as you leave. If they reject you, because it's not about you, it's about the son. And it's not just of the son, but also of the father. So the son gives the words of the father to the disciples. What are you doing with the word of Christ? Are you believing in the word of Christ? Are you meditating on it? Are you hiding it in your heart? Are you reading the word of God? Jesus or Moses said that this word is your life. He said. To hear the word. Are you being a doer of it as well? To receive the word means we just not only hear it, but we obey it with evangelical faith and obedience. Now, the son in the second point, verses nine through twelve, asks the father to keep the disciples of the son. This is where we get to the second petition of the high priestly prayer. Look with me again at verse nine. Here we see Jesus making his request now, the second one. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Christ is doing what? He's asking on behalf of whom? His people, his disciples. Narrowly, he's asking for those disciples, his inner core. But if you go down, it's not inconsistent to also realize that in verse 20, you can make that application as well. Notice here, 
he also later asked, not just for his inner circle of disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their, meaning the disciples' word. So I think that what is said of the disciples narrowly can also be applied to us. We have believed on Jesus Christ because of the word of the disciples, of the apostles. They have given us the word in the New Testament and we have received that word and we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ because of their word. So there's a sense, boys and girls, you need to see that Jesus is praying uh, not just narrowly for his own disciples, his own inner 12, but he is praying for you. He's praying for his church. The intercessory prayer of Jesus is specifically for those whom the father has chosen, the elect and given to the son. Notice verse nine says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. What is this distinction between the world and those for whom he is praying? Well, the distinction is between those who have been chosen and those who have not. Those for whom the son will lay down his life uh, effectually. Those who will be given the Holy Spirit and be sealed by the Spirit. These are God's people. And we need to realize that our perseverance as a church and as Christians individually is dependent on this intercession of Jesus for us. We, we should praise the Lord for his priestly work on our behalf. Uh, I think it was John Owen I read recently noted that the priestly work of Christ does not end at the sacrifice, at the cross. But the priestly work of Christ continues post-resurrection, post-ascension with his intercession. You have to realize, and Hebrews really brings this out wonderfully, that just as the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies once a year and not without blood, Jesus, the, the, one of the purposes of, of the ascension is so that Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies. Not just the typological holy of holies in the building in Jerusalem, but the very holy of holies where God himself dwells in glory and Christ is going there. Yes, he is there as a king reigning and ruling with all power and authority. Yes, he's there as a prophet whereby he sends the spirit out and gives the application of the word. But he's also there as a priest. And what is he doing? He, he's in the holy of holies. And he is a constant reminder of the shed blood of himself before the father. So he stands as a priest who has made a perfect sacrifice, who's bringing perfect blood. And thereby uh, we have this access to the father through his perfect work. Well, that that priestly intercession continues in glory. So Jesus is not asking on behalf of the world. And I think the world should be understood here as the non-elect. The non-elect are not chosen of the father, nor are they given to the son. And so the son does not make intercession for them salvifically. Those chosen by the father belong both to the father and to the son. Jesus makes this clear. They are chosen by the father And thus they belong to the father. And yet the father, we are told, gives his chosen people to the son and says, here, these these people, your these elect of mine that I have chosen from before the foundation of the earth. I give them to you. I've chosen them in you and I give them to you, the son. 
And the son receives them, gives his word to them, dies for them, is raised for them, intercedes for them now. Now, all of this, let me say theologically, I don't believe that any of the above excludes the person of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what about the Spirit? Spirit hasn't been mentioned yet. Um, Well, we know that the Spirit is not excluded from this exchange. Well, for one reason, we know that all of Christ's disciples are baptized into what? The name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Spirit's name is a part of our baptism. But what Jesus is doing here is he's emphasizing his union and his unity with the Father. The union of the Father and the Son is also a union with the person of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit proceeds, just as we said this morning in the Nicene Creed, (coughs) that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And in this union between the Father and the Son are the people of God. We belong to the Father and to the Son in the Holy Spirit. The Father has given us to Jesus Christ. Christ prays to the Father that the Father would keep us. And Christ does not pray for the world. For the world does not know God and does not share in this mystical union with the Father and the Son. This is one of the things that makes this prayer a tremendous field for meditation. The Bible says that which is of flesh is flesh, but those born of the spirit have become the children of God. They are chosen of the Lord and they are prayed for by the son, by Jesus Christ. And so look at verse 10. Jesus says, and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. Now, what are these things? I think this is the church, God's elect. All these that are mine, all of God's people that are mine, are yours, speaking to the Father. And yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. The Father and the Son share in this work of redeeming God's people. And Jesus Christ is glorified in his people. The Son receives recognition and honor by his redeemed people. Now, in verse 11, Jesus seems then to come to his main point here. And look at verse 11. He says this, I am no longer in the world. And I think the rest was prior to this was kind of preface for this point in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you. What was the point of all of that that Jesus said? All this, you know, they are yours and they're mine and we have this union together. And it was for this. Jesus is saying this, boys and girls, I'll put it very simply. He's leaving the world. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. And he's praying with them and for them. His comments regarding all this theology about the union of the father and the son In regard to the care of his people, it is prefaced to this point. Jesus is going to heaven physically. And thereby the disciples are going to be left, in a sense, alone, but not alone, 
in this world. And they are grieved at that. You remember that from the upper room discourse. They're grieved at the thought that Jesus, with whom they have been for three years, is leaving them. But Jesus has reminded them that this is better that I go. And so Jesus is going to go into heaven where he has been with the father for all eternity past. Notice in verse 10, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I am coming to you. He is not coming as he did in his pre-incarnate state, though. He is now returning to the father as the God man. In eternity past, he was the eternal son. Now he is the eternal son of God become man. And Jesus is praying that the father keep them as he returns to heaven. And so Jesus's earthly ministry here is nearing its end. He's going to be physically separated from his disciples. They shall behold him only for a little while longer, he told them. And therefore, he is praying that the father would keep them in the unity of Christ while he returns to be with the father. That is essentially Jesus is praying that the father would preserve the faith of his disciples. So that they would continue to share in that union of Jesus Christ together. Notice that Jesus says that they might be one as the Father is one with the Son. So it's not just a kind of superficial uh, unity that is being prayed for here. Um, many times this is applied, you know, to, well, this is why we shouldn't have denominations. And that's another subject. And there's, I think it can be applied to that. But what Christ really is praying is something much deeper. That is, he's praying that the communion of, of God's people be maintained with one another spiritually. That is, that no one would, like Judas, fall away. That they, they would stay in the union and communion with one another and with the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. That is, to depart from faith in Christ would be to depart from the communion of the saints. And the union would be broken. So he is praying for his people that they stay in Christ. Christ, in verse 12, notes that he's kept all his disciples except for Judas, who had already been predetermined to be the son of perdition. And so it's not for any lack of faithfulness on Jesus's part that Judas departs. <coughs> Judas never had any true union with the father or the son. Now, let me mention a few thoughts and applications, and I want to close and come to the table tonight. Thoughts and applications. Number one, and it's got, it's, there's only one, but it's got subpoints. <laughs> the union and the communion of the Father and the Son with the Holy Spirit remind us who are in Christ of the precious Value of our own union and communion with the three persons of the Trinity. And of the value of this communion that we share with all of God's people. The union and the communion of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That is the union that all three persons of the Trinity have among each other. Shows us something of the value of 
our union and communion both with God and with one another. We have been brought by the work of Jesus Christ into this union with the Godhead. The Spirit of God now dwells within us. The very third person of the Trinity resides within us, making us in the image of Jesus, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus, one day glorifying us that we will be without sin, serving the Lord, if I can say this reverently, as well as Jesus would serve the Lord. Serving the Lord without any internal resistance from within by the remaining corruption. See, when we, we have this desire to serve the Lord presently by the Spirit, what He's done in us, but we still have the old man alive that is resisting and rebelling the work of the Spirit, and there, that creates tension within us so that uh, we, we don't always do with a whole heart what we should do. We don't always seek out to obey God as fully as we ought. We never do anything as perfectly as we should, because even the best of our works are still tainted with sin. So there is this war that, to put in the old King James language. The spirit lusteth after the flesh and the flesh lusteth after the spirit. That is this tension, this war between the dying remnant of sin within us, but still resisting and the growing work of the spirit within us. The spirit has been deposited within us. We have the spirit as an earnest, bringing us into union with the father through faith in Jesus Christ. We have been sealed with the spirit. We're in communion with all three persons of the Trinity. We're in communion with the father. We're in communion with the son. We're in communion with the Holy Spirit. The Son is interceding for us. Romans 8 says that the Spirit is interceding for us with groans too deep for words. That groaning is not you groaning. The groaning is the Spirit groaning. Why is the Spirit groaning? The groaning is the Spirit interceding for the people of God. We, we are in this vital union. It cannot be broken. And even as we are reminded of the precious value of this union and communion, we need to remind ourselves that we are admonished by scriptures, therefore, not to grieve the spirit. But to seek to walk in this communion that has been purchased for us and sealed to us by the spirit and purchased by the son, sealed to us by the spirit. That we abide in the spirit, that we seek to be full of the Holy Spirit. That we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that that we would uh, know of this communion with the Godhead. But also, this means that there's value in our communion with all believers in Jesus Christ. That we have a, a precious union and communion with one another. Now, this is exemplified here at the Lord's table. We all partake of the same body, drink of the same blood at the table, the blood of Christ. We are partaking and we are recognizing that mystical union that's spoken of here in John 17. We eat of the body. We drink of the blood of the Lord by faith, not in a corporal and carnal manner, but spiritually and truly. 
And we confess at the table that we are thereby sharing in this union with the Godhead with other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who have publicly confessed the name of Jesus Christ and have been baptized. And so, therefore, we can deduce that we need to be careful to preserve, maintain, promote that mutual communion with one another through love and through service. It also means that as a church, we need to be careful to shepherd all of God's people because we have this union and communion with one another. And that none would stray away from the living God. Christ has said here that he has lost none of his sheep except the one who had been determined to betray him. And it is as the church and especially those of us who are under shepherds in Christ We are to be diligent in keeping God's people. While Christ is away with the Father, we need to do that. How do we do that? We check on one another. We call when one is absent. We visit those who regularly cannot be among us due to health or age constraints. We do it through pastoral visiting, spiritual checkups. And yes, we do it through Matthew 18 when it's a matter of, of sin, we go to them privately, and if that doesn't yield a result, then we bring one or two others with us. And if that doesn't yield a result, we tell it to the church for the purpose not of embarrassing the person, but of, ma- of maintaining the union and communion that they are professing in Jesus Christ. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. We are members of one another. We are part of the body of Jesus Christ, of which he alone is the head. Amen. Father, we thank you for...